Every once in a while, I get an email from a Nigerian prince who is very, very complimentary about my character and what I'm accomplishing with my life. And because of that, he wants to give me a portion of his fortune. The only catch is that the poor dude is apparently a little cash short right now because he needs me to front about a thousand bucks in order for him to be able to get it through customs and actually wire the money to me. Um, and as tempting as it sound, sounds, number one, Nigeria does not have a royal family, so he can't be a prince. And number two, like everything else, if it sounds too good, it probably is. Definitely a scam. And in fact, over the last couple of weeks, my email has been hacked a number of times and a number of you have probably received emails from me asking for money. I'm distressed that nobody cares enough to actually send it, but that's beside the point. Most of you figured out it was a scam. And that actually is a little bit what's behind what Paul is writing about today. Um, Paul, who is you know, leading the charge for the gospel in Gentile or non-Jewish areas of the empire, is in prison. And people are going, can this be real? Or is this a scam? So Paul's going to address that. I also think that some of the issues that Paul raises maybe some things that we think about. You know, you come to Jesus and it's this great thing and then you realize that life can still be hard and you can still go through some tragic situations and lots of things don't turn out and there's not too many of us who haven't at one point or another gone, is this for real? I, th I thought having a relationship with God would make things different. So all of that is tied up in what Paul's going to talk about today. So we're going to be reading a passage from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And it's a little bit difficult, and oftentimes, quite frankly, it's just skipped over. But I think there's some stuff in there that's worth our while. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I've already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So if you listened carefully, there was an abrupt switch at the end of verse 1. And verses 2 through 13 are basically an aside. 
Paul is dictating a letter, and he's talking about all the grace that came that he talked about in chapter 2 in light of what God has done. And then he goes on this riff about what's going on in his life right now and the purpose that his life has. And next week, we'll start at chapter 14, and you basically could drop out 2 through 13, and 1 would flow right into 14. So it's just kind of this excursus which strikes him at the moment, you know, underneath the guidance of the Holy Spirit and all. Uh, but it, that's why it's a little bit jarring, because it's mostly an aside. So I want to make a couple points that Paul is making here. First, this is about measuring success differently, or it could be titled Jesus and Downward Mobility. In the first couple of verses, Paul uses some funny language to describe himself. In verse 1, he talks, of it, talks about himself as being a prisoner of Jesus. And if you drop way down to verse 13, he talks about his sufferings. And what he's referring to is the fact that he literally is in prison on behalf of the Gentiles. So he talks about being a prisoner. And then in verse 7, he talks about how he's become a servant of the gospel. Well, I don't know what career track you're on, but being a prisoner or a servant doesn't sound like you're on the fast track to success. And that's why Paul is writing this, at least in part, because people are beginning to wonder, is this a scam? Are we on a sinking ship? Our leader is in prison. That can't be a good thing. Well, what Paul is going to bring up is that it depends on context. Talking about being a servant, you're going to serve something, or you're going to serve someone. You might be serving your own desires. You might be serving various addictions. You might even be serving something good, but your life is going to be lived in service to something or someone. And so Paul says, I'm living my life serving Jesus. And I think about this personally as I think about, you know, what am I serving? What is my life dedicated to? And I recognize over and over that Jesus makes sense of my life, that Jesus brings me a sense of peace and a sense of hope that I haven't found anywhere else. And so being in service to Jesus is really not that big of a deal because of what I found in him. And lots of you would say the same things. Drugs and alcohol didn't bring you peace. Financial success didn't bring you peace. It bought you more toys and it gave you more ways to self-medicate, but it didn't really bring a deep sense of peace. We find peace when we come to know Jesus. And Paul talks about that a lot in chapter 2. Also note, as he's talking about being a servant and being a prisoner, he notes he's a prisoner of Jesus. He could have blamed the Romans. He could have even blamed the Jews for being in prison. But Paul sees his present situation as being on behalf of Jesus, not because of all the other people. He's a prisoner of Christ. Now, that's not denial. He, he, he knows that that's the reality, that he's in prison. That just is his focus. It's like, well, here I am, God. I'm in prison, but I trust that you have a plan and a purpose and that you have a, you've got a way to use me here in prison for your glory. So Paul is open to being used by God in the midst of hardship, in the midst of suffering. Now, the example here is not that we should seek out suffering. That would mean we need medical help. What it is, is an example that we can trust God 
even when we're in the midst of suffering, that God has a plan and a purpose. There's this great old Swedish song called Day by Day, and the beginning lyric goes, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. I love that lyric because it points right back to what Paul is talking about, that being in Jesus, being a prisoner of Christ, being a servant of Jesus means God's in control. It means that we are not primarily victims of circumstances. Even in prison, Paul is under the control and the protection of the God of the universe. But sometimes that's where it gets a little bit confusing because it just seems like those are two diametrically opposed things. How can you be protected and cared for by the God of the universe and be in prison? Well, it's kind of this in-between stage that we're in, isn't it? Where Jesus has begun his victory over evil and sin and death, but isn't quite through yet. And so life is not always gonna be great, but even when it isn't great, God can still use us. I, I think about a couple of quotes from the book of Job, where Job says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God is still good, even in the hard times. And then this great faith statement, because Job recognizes that even though God might slay him, he still is worthy of his trust. Because frankly, there are things that are worth worse than death. Next, God has a purpose. In verse 1, Paul says, it's for the sake of you Gentiles, the administration of God's grace was given to me. And then in verse 8, he says, his purpose is to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. So Paul was driven by this purpose that God had given him, and thankfully so. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. He mentions again in verse 13, everything that I'm going through is for your glory. Sometimes it's easy to forget how interconnected we all are with each other and how we're affected by the choices that other people make and how the choices that we make affect other people. We're here literally because Paul focused on the purpose that Jesus gave him. We wouldn't be here if Paul had lost his focus. And maybe there are other people like that in your life. Maybe if someone hadn't faithfully prayed for you, you wouldn't be here. Or maybe if someone hadn't sat with you at your lowest point and loved you anyway, you wouldn't be where you were. And then flip that around. Maybe someone else's life has been changed because you faithfully prayed. Or maybe you sat with someone at their lowest point and loved them anyway, and that made the difference. Sometimes we aren't that great at noticing how God has used us in situations. So God has a purpose. We've been studying this. God's purpose is that everyone would come to know him. God's love knows no bounds. Paul had a purpose, that he would let the outsiders know that they could become insiders too. So what's your purpose? An experience would tell me that most people would answer, I don't know. But the reality is the purpose that God has for our lives, I don't think is any great mystery, which we'll get to in a few moments. If you've got kids, your purpose is to raise decent people who love Jesus and aren't strange. Let's unpack that just briefly. Decent people recognize that other people exist. 
Decent people are kind and not selfish. Decent people care about people around them. So the other day, I'm eating at Fondi, and uh, I'm noticing that there is a table that has two or three families, kids, teenagers, and adults. And at some point, I don't know whether they had them take the olives off the pizza and give them to them in a bowl or whatever, but there was a bunch of olives involved. And at some point, one of the kids took the olives and dumped them on the ground. Had it been my kid, no judgment, I would have gotten up and picked the olives up. Nobody moved. And then, as I'm sort of chuckling about how clueless they are about this, every single person, when they got up to leave the table, stepped on the olives. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding. Decent people don't spill olives on the floor and then walk on them. You're welcome, Chris Olson. Raise decent people. Get them to love Jesus. Now check this. What are your goals for your kids? Maybe that they would play at a D1 school, or get a scholarship at an Ivy League institution, have lots of friends, regularly do their chores without being asked? What about raising them to love Jesus? Because it doesn't happen by accident any more than any of the rest of those goals do. You can't guarantee any outcome, but you can hedge your bets a little bit. And then raise kids that aren't strange. I cannot emphasize this enough. My friend John Johnson used to say, we want our kids to be different, but for all the right reasons. And I say, amen to that. So you got kids, that's part of your purpose. But sometimes your purpose is not so obvious. Sometimes it's not glamorous, but it might be the thing that's right in front of you to do. Sometimes we can't find our purpose because we don't really want to. We might know the right thing to do, but we don't really want to do it. Sometimes we might be looking for something really big when God is at work in the small things. If you don't know what purpose God has for you right now, as you're figuring that out, I can give you a couple really easy things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Just focus on those things. How do you arrange your priorities so that you can follow Jesus more closely and so that your life looks more like Jesus? That's what's gonna bring you peace and significance. How do you love the people that are right in front of you? Next, you don't need a decoder ring. Paul talks several times about this mystery, the mystery that God has shown him. In Semitic culture, which is this, um, it doesn't reveal, it doesn't, mystery doesn't mean something hidden like it does to us. It means something that's known because God revealed it. So it's a little bit of a different uh, take on it. And that's why you don't need the decoder ring because God has revealed to us the things that we need to know. And in this case, the mystery is that, gee whiz, we're all included. And that is, is what's been revealed to Paul, and that's what he is sharing. And that's what's causing his suffering, because he's following through on God's plan and purpose. His plan for Paul is to make plain to everyone that God loves you. And I just, I want to extrapolate on this for a moment, because particularly during this time where there's all sorts of crazy things that are going on, a lot of people are very interested in end times or what's happening, and a lot of people are reading Revelation and other apocalyptic literature. What I want to say to you is, start with the plain stuff, 
before you go to the harder stuff. There are plenty of things that God has revealed about his plan and his purpose, his love and his character. And honestly, when I read the, the book of Revelation, the thing that I'm sure about is that whatever God does in the end time, I'm gonna be on the right side. You don't need a decoder ring. They didn't need a decoder ring to figure out what Paul was talking about. Next is, we have an impact on spiritual struggles. And this is an interesting point, because Paul says, through the church, the manifold, manifold wisdom of God should be made known to, I would think, all of the people around the world, but that's not what he says. He says, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realm. So remember, one of the hallmarks of Ephesians is Paul bounces back and forth between the macro and the micro, the spiritual and the physical, heavenly beings and physical beings. And he's always talking about the interaction between the two and how they both affect each other. And so in this, in, in this particular verse, he's talking about how opening up the mystery of what God has done in Christ to everyone is what we should share, the manifold wisdom of God, is what we declare to the principalities and the powers. So there's a lot of crazy that's going on where people, oftentimes well-meaning people, seem to have lost the meaning of the gospel. And a lot of the things that the church has been busy about, I'm not really sure comes under the umbrella of the manifold wisdom of God. Because what we need to be preaching to the principalities and the powers of evil is, you've lost. Jesus wins. And we show that by the way that we live our lives. Instead, it's really easy to just be overwhelmed by the evil and the craziness that's around us. Stuck, apparently, this is uh, Pastor Michael does Songs Week in the sermon. But as I was thinking about this point, there's one of the stanzas of Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress, came to me. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. I think that's exactly what Paul is talking about. We're supposed to be living in and proclaiming the truth that Jesus has won the victory over evil, over lies, over sin, over all of the other things, that, over chaos that we deal with on a regular basis. And I think that it is important for us to focus on the truth. It's important for us to focus on what the gospel is really about. Because I am more concerned than I have ever been that we are about to lose an entire generation of people from the church. Some of them younger, but certainly not all. Not because they don't like Jesus, but because they're repulsed by the politics being more important than living out the gospel in so much of the, exp the expression of Christianity in the United States. When it comes to politics, I think we need to take our stand with Jesus. The thing that we care about most politically what did Jesus say about that? And how does that match up with how much importance we're putting on it? And then conversely, that thing that the other side seems to care about so much, what if Jesus said a lot about that, but we haven't taken the time to pay attention? Next, it's finished. That's what Paul is talking about in verse 11. According to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, 
it's already done. The, the absolute hinge of history is what Jesus did on the cross for us. I mean, this is our hope. It's not like the outcome of all of this is up for grabs. It's like, spoiler alert, evil, you lose. And Jesus wins. The world was changed with Jesus' death and resurrection. We're just living into that. And some days it is incredibly messy. But because of that, verse 12, we can approach God with confidence and freedom. And then in verse 13, where Paul talks about his suffering being for the glory of the Gentiles, I think we need to re-examine and maybe develop a theology of hardship. Because even though we may not belong to the health and wealth gospel or the gospel of prosperity, lots of times we assume that when things are going well, God is blessing us. And when things aren't going well, either we did something wrong or somehow God fell down on his side of the bargain. But there are so many examples, and Paul in Ephesians is one of them, where hardship just comes. And God is still present in the hardship, and God is still able to use the hardship. So I think we have to be careful about how we view success and be careful about how we interpret our life situation. I mean, aging, it's just a bummer. There's absolutely no glory in it whatsoever. Raising kids can be challenging. There will be some seasons where you're like, why in the world did I think this was a good idea? People can and will be mean in middle school and all throughout life. Life will deal you some very difficult blows. But in order for any of this to make sense, we have to understand that God triumphs over the principalities and the powers of evil through the cross, through weakness, through hardship, through suffering, not through military might. I mean, think for a second about the story of David and Goliath. I mean, we celebrate what God is doing there. Maybe it's because we know how the story ends. When we feel like David, is our prayer that God's purpose would be made perfect in our weakness, or is it that we need more power to accomplish what we need to do? I mean, the glory of the story of David and Goliath was that David was unfit for the task. I mean, he shows up there, and everybody in Israel looks around and goes, where's a man? They sent us a boy. But in David's weakness, it showed the glory of God. It highlights God's power, not David's power. There might be an awful lot of things in your life that you don't understand. There might be some things that are really, really tough. But one of the things that this passage reminds us about is that God is present in the hard stuff and that God can use the hard stuff for his plan and his purposes. So let me ask you a couple of questions. What purpose do you think God has for this stage of your life? Number two, how do you usually view hardship? And number three, how can you see God at work in the challenges of your life?